Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, June 11th, and we're doing a roundup episode on three major news events. The largest financial industry reform since the Great Recession, the first trade war since the Great Depression, and the third Fed meeting since the Yellen succession. I'm feeling a little pinchy today. Thank you all for tolerating my uh, sense of humor. <laughs> Matt, welcome back to the show. Always good to be here. Fantastic. All right, let's go ahead and start in with our first news story. Uh, deregulation is uh, something that we've talked about in the past as being a bit of a cycle. You know, there are a number of cycles in financials, whether it's the regulatory cycle, the credit cycle, um, interest rate cycle, uh, and a variety of other things. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking specifically about the deregulatory cycle. And um, we, so, Congress has passed a, a major financial reform, a deregulation of the financial services industry. Um, it's pretty similar to the one that we discussed on the March 19th episode of Industry Focused Financials. So if you're looking for kind of a deeper discussion of it, head back to that one. That's where we really get into all the nitty gritty. But let's talk about the broad strokes of it because it has big impacts on bank profitability going forward. Yeah. Um, basically, this was kind of in response to what a lot of people consider to be kind of over reforms after the financial crisis. Uh, the Dodd-Frank reforms was kind of the big, you know, banking reform to designed to prevent the financial crisis from ever happening again. And what this bill does, it's not a complete rollback. It's not, it doesn't eliminate the Dodd-Frank rules, but it does roll a lot of them back. Um, the biggest provision in the bill reduced or changes the definition of what a system systemically important financial institution or SIFI is which up till now has been defined as a bank with more than $50 billion worth of assets. Um, this in two steps will raise that threshold fivefold to $250 billion. It increases it to $100 billion immediately and then to $250 billion in 18 months. Um, this reduces the number of banks that are considered SIFIs by about to about a third of what it is currently. Um, and basically, this makes sense. Even... Um, Barney Frank, whose name is on the Dodd-Frank bill, supported raising the threshold somewhat. Um, the the logic goes, um, if, say, Bank of America were to collapse, we would all be in trouble. That would be a big shock to our financial system. But if a bank like, say, SunTrust or BB&T were to go under, it would be a, a big shockwave. But it, would it collapse our financial system? Probably not. And that's kind of what they're going for here is to kind of make their – the SIFI threshold more indicative of what actually is a too big to fail bank. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, you know Frank certainly did su support uh, increasing the threshold. I, I think his number was more like one hundred to one hundred and twenty-five billion. So this is still bigger than the, what that number was. Um, but as you pointed out, you know what you know this really gets to this core idea of what does systemically important mean, and um, and that. This has sort of been the decision. Um, also, banks with less than $10 billion in assets are exempt from the Volcker Rule, which prohibits various risky investments. So smaller banks can now kind of do a little bit more um, to try and juice their profitability. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
the Volcker rule, in addition to the the real estate rule for or the real estate uh, provision for smaller banks, where banks with less than ten billion dollars of assets can now also make mortgages that don't necessarily conform to the traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac standards, kind of giving them a little bit of a competitive edge in that market. Mm-hmm. Um, the other kind of reform that I think is really what got a lot of bipartisan support on this is a consumer protection reform that makes credit freezes free. Before this, uh, credit for, to put a freeze on your credit cost about $10, depending on what state you were in, per credit bureau, and you need to put one individually on all three credit bureaus. So this is a big win for consumers, and is kind of why I think some Democrats kind of went over the over the fence and and decided to vote for this bill. Yeah, and and let's talk briefly about the investing implications here. So um, as we touched on in greater depth on our March nineteenth episode, so again, head back to that one if you really want the full discussion because that bill was fairly similar to what ended up uh, coming out of Congress and being signed by the president. Um, you know, this doesn't really do anything to benefit the Bank of America's of the world. And it doesn't really do that much to benefit um, kind of your 10 to $50 billion banks, so a lot of kind of like your your, your regional banks. Um, but what it does do is it benefits kind of banks that were right on that $50 billion threshold. Now they can grow and um, <clears throat> without triggering a lot of extra re- reporting and a lot of extra regulation. And so you can probably expect to see some more mergers and acquisitions in that space at that size. And then, of course, as you noted, Matt, there are some benefits uh, for really, really small banks. Of course, flip side of that is those benefits often come with some additional risks. You know, conforming loans are conforming for a reason, <laughs> for example, right? So, um, right. Uh, you know, when when you start doing mortgages that are really outside what Fannie and Freddie go for, um, sometimes there's a good reason for that, and sometimes there are not great, let's say, risk-adjusted reasons for that. Right. Um, to be clear, that just to your first point, the SIFI requirements for banks are pretty expensive. Um, uh, New York Community Bank is one that I talk about frequently that was is on the cusp and have been preparing. To, for these extra costs, and it's cost the bank billions of dollars, and really driven down profits. So these are this is a big deal to banks that otherwise would have would have to comply with the SIFI requirements. Um, to your second point, the small banks, yes, mortgages are com- are conforming for a reason. Um, the non-conforming mortgages were arguably the reason for the financial crisis. Um, but like you said, there are val- some valid reasons. So as long as this is done responsibly. It's a big win for the smaller banks, but it does come with a certain level of risk, and it should be kind of closely monitored to make sure that the non-conforming mortgages that are being offered aren't getting out of hand again. Right. So, the key investing takeaway here is, at least in the short to medium term, there are some significant benefits here for especially some of your medium-sized, medium-to-large banks in particular. All right, we'll head to our next two stories in just a minute, but first, a message from our sponsor. It's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom with three O's. Sound tough? Actually, it's not. In fact, it only takes five minutes. Go online to bloom401k.com fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Bloom's pricing is $10 per month regardless of account size. They link up to your existing 401k so you don't have to move your money. They're also a completely independent advisor, so you know you're getting unbiased expert investment advice. Bloom researches, invests, manages, monitors, and grows your 401k while you relax. 
Bloom is very simple. In fact, the hardest part about this is remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. So go to bloom41k.com slash fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. Again, that's bloom41k, again, three O's in bloom.com slash fool. All right, let's turn to our second story, which is something that maybe you don't necessarily think, oh, financials, but the trade war uh, that appears to be brewing between the United States and, well, a number of other countries, let's say, um, certainly has some big uh, potential impacts on the financial industry. Yeah, definitely. And whether we're actually in a trade war yet or not is kind of another argument for another day. <laughs> hey, let's just say but, if we end up in one at some point, then we'll say, yeah, you let, know, yeah. let's just say, yeah. Um, and basically, our the, our president's mentality is that it's unfair if certain countries charge us high tariffs on goods and we're not charging the same tariffs in response. And to be fair, it's tough to make the argument that, say, if another country is charging us 50% tariffs on imported cars and we're charging that same country 5%, it's really a tough argument to make that that's fair. But it's a lot more complex than that. And that's kind of what we're getting into now um, with this back and forth on what trades we're going to impose, what countries they're going to be imposed on, who's going to be exempt, and all these things. That kind of It kind of seems like we are going in the direction of a trade war. Um, with that said, the effects of a trade war are generally going to be life is going to get more expensive. Um, trade wars generally lead to inflation because the increased tariffs are passed on to consumers. Um, you may have read that other countries are considering retaliatory tariffs on us, which would make some of our products a little bit more expensive. Um, this in turn, higher prices are also known as inflation. And the Federal Reserve likes to keep a close watch on inflation as one of its triggers for raising interest rates. So higher consumer prices could lead to higher interest rates, which could all, could lead to not only an economic slowdown or recession, but it also translates to higher borrowing costs for you. So not only are goods and services going to be more expensive, but it's going to cost you more money to borrow for them. So this could be a very taxing trade war on American consumers' pockets. Yeah, and just to kind of operationalize that a little bit, some things uh, respond directly to interest rate hikes, some things don't. So, for example, uh, credit card uh, rates usually march in not precise lockstep, but very close to, you know, Fed announces a rate hike, credit card rates go up. Pretty much it's a one-to-one. With, say, mortgages, for example, it's a little bit more tenuous of a relationship. Um, They tend to react a little bit more slowly. But you know, long term, those also tend to go uh, with them. Um, you know, auto loans um, tend to um, be a little bit closer to a one-to-one relationship, similar to credit cards. Um, and so, there are definitely a lot of things that could be getting a fair amount more expensive in, let's say, a relatively short term. Now, again, you know, one of the big questions here is. Do we end up in an actual trade war? You know, there's a lot of saber rattling going on. What actually ends up happening ultimately? Um, <clears throat> And then, you know, what parts of the economy are affected. Um, so, so there are a lot of different things at play here, in part because we haven't really been in a true trade war since the Great Depression. Um, now, to be clear, that was during the Great Depression, not before it. So it didn't, uh, so it wasn't uh, necessarily a cause. But uh, the Smoot Hawley tariffs are viewed as, um, uh, are generally viewed as 
um, uh, a a bill set of regulations that um, worsened the Great Depression. And uh, but but you know the other piece to keep in mind there is that it's been you know. 80, almost 90 years since that happened. And, you know, the, the world has changed a little bit since the 1930s. And so there are a lot of, I think, question marks as we think about that going forward. But for banks specifically, higher interest rates, generally a good thing. But in this case, not necessarily. Yeah, it's, first of all, like Michael said, a lot of people, most people alive have never lived through a trade war. So that's why you're you're seeing the market jump all over the place every time. Uh, will this tariff be announced? Will there be a retaliatory tariff? You'll see the market jump a little more than you might expect, just because no one really knows what to make of it. Um, especially in the current situation, when we're you know talking with our allies and putting talking about putting tariffs on them. Um, yeah, this is not necessarily good news for banks, especially if we see an economic slowdown and. Things like you know lending demand drops, um, that's definitely not a positive thing for the bank. Or if you know unemployment starts to pick up because of it and consumers can't pay their bills, that's a negative for banks. Right. So there are a lot there are a lot of reasons why this is not as good news for banks as when say interest rates rise because the economy is doing well as has been the case for the past couple of years. Yeah, and 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 that's one of the interesting things again. <clears throat> Taking us back to that earlier conversation about cycles, right? Um, a uh, a a these the economic cycle itself really underlies a lot of these other ones, and so when the you know when the economy starts, let's say turning south, which inevitably it will one day. Now is that you know because it's just things can't just expand for forever, much as we all wish they could. Um, you know when that happens, the credit cycle starts to turn. You know basically banking gets tougher. And that's when um, banks who have done a really good job of properly managing their credit risk really shine compared to everybody else. But that's because everyone's facing a headwind. And that can be just kind of a difficult thing across the board. So it's definitely something we're going to want to watch going forward. For obvious reasons, it's very difficult to pick out winners and losers or even sort of what people should do right now um, because it's been so long since we were really in a position kind of like this that it's just not clear. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's been a little while since we've had to deal with this. So we'll see, like you said, we'll see what actually happens with it. Maybe it'll turn out to be a whole lot of talk over not a big problem. And some tariffs may actually you know, do their job and be a positive catalyst. But we'll just see where this goes. Yeah. All right. So, speaking of predicting the future, because why not? Our third uh, story today is a preview of the Fed meeting, which starts, I think, tomorrow, right? Uh, yes. Uh, no, Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday. Sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Anyway, that happens this week. Um, and amongst other things, the uh, Fed is widely expected to bump the interest rate, the raise the Fed funds target to 1.75 to 2%, which is a 25 um, uh, basis point hike. Yeah, this would be um, the seventh rate hike in the current cycle. And basically, just kind of a quick background on what this means. When the, you hear that the Fed is raising rates, this means the federal funds rate, which has wide implications, as we've kind of already discussed a little bit. 
Um, specifically, the prime rate is directly linked to the federal funds rate. So anything that's linked to the prime rate is also going to rise. This includes pretty much every credit card in existence. Uh, I think something like 99% of credit cards are directly linked to the federal funds rate. Um, home equity lines of credit also will rise in tandem with the federal funds rate. Um, and other consumer interest rates, like we mentioned, mortgages, auto loans, and such, tend to move in the same direction, although it's not a perfect correlation. Um, the general rule is the shorter term the lending instrument is, the better the correlation will be. This is why auto loans tend to move a little bit closer in line with the federal funds rate than, say, mortgages. Um, but the real story here isn't about the rate hike. There's over a 90% chance of a rate hike already priced into the market. So it's pretty much a, pretty much a certainty that it's, it's going to happen. The real stories are kind of what else the Fed talks about, uh, specifically where do they see interest rates going. One of the big questions is will there be another one or two interest rate hikes after this this year? Right. Um, at the beginning of the year, the big thing was three or four, and this will be two. So the the Fed's projection, which is known as their dot plot, if you see that in articles after the meeting, um, should give us a little more color on what on what to expect the rest of this year and the next few years. Yeah, and of course, I think I imagine one of the big questions that'll be kind of coming out from the Fed, you know, that I I I'll be very interested to see what the Fed governors make of a potential trade war and sort of how they see that impacting things and how likely they think that is to happen. I mean, you know, I think a lot of market watchers will be really laser focused on this particular meeting to try to get an understanding of where you know, our our central bankers essentially think uh, things are going and what's really going to happen. Um, you know, uh, Matt, as you and I were talking a bit before the show, you know, the Fed paints a generally a pretty rosy picture. I mean, I mean, unemployment projections are supposed to be down to three point six percent, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. You know, does that get uh, impacted? Um, you know, inflation is supposed to be about two point one percent in twenty twenty. How does that get impacted from here? Um, you know, they they the Fed very clearly views like very gradual ramps up in inflation, down in unemployment, um, and GDP growth that's in the twos, which is pretty darn good. Question is, you know, what does the current uncertainty? What does the recent bank regulatory reform? You know, what do all these other things? How do those come into this forecast and change it? Right, and it's worth noting that one of the big kind of questions here is that. You mentioned the unemployment, they're projecting 3.6% for 2019 and 2020, and only about 2% inflation. That is remarkably low inflation historically for such good unemployment. Generally, when unemployment gets to that level, you'll see inflation in the 4 to 5% range. So, And it's also worth mentioning that all those projections you just mentioned were revised up significantly at the last meeting. So it's it'll be interesting to see if the Fed still sees it going in such a rosy direction, or if all of this talk about trade wars and things like that have kind of made him a little more cautious in taking a step back. Yeah, um, I think that's going to be a, a big question. And then, of course, one of the other big issues we'll have to kind of see happening from here is um, what's going to happen with the balance sheet runoff and how the Fed's going to reduce its exposure there. Yeah, um, Basically, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the Fed started buying up treasuries to kind of you know stimulate the markets, and wound up with a balance sheet of about 4.5 trillion dollars. Which recently, not too recently, the Fed indicated that it was going to start 
you know, selling these off, unwinding its balance sheet. And most of the Fed directors indicated that it would generally get down to about $2.5 trillion in this, in this round of unwinding. Now, recent reports are indicating that this might end a little sooner and be not quite as deep of an unwinding as we thought, which could be indicating that the Fed isn't going to hike rates quite as much as initially projected over the next few years. So that's another thing to kind of keep an eye out for is the the Fed's balance sheet and kind of any comments toward that. There is some speculation they might wait till the August meeting to to talk really talk more about it, but they could surprise the market. There's a there's a big buzz that this is coming this this meeting. Yeah, and, and you know again, it's one of those things where when you when you look at the Fed, um, what what you kind of have to think about is the Fed's uh, viewpoints on kind of what future growth looks like and then how risky or how un, you know how how likely how certain they feel about that growth actually occurring right so if future growth is going to happen fed's going to raise rates just as a general rule and they're going to try to again deliver um, or take you know get those treasuries off their balance sheet um, if there are risks to those uh, outcomes, then the Fed is going to become kind of more conservative in how it approaches those things. So um, that that's going to be just kind of a big thing for us to watch going forward. Yeah, just remember at the end of the day, the Fed's kind of goal is to maintain orderly, non-panicked markets. So pretty much everything they do will be toward that goal. So if they see something kind of you know deviating from what they feel is a normal, healthy market, then expect them to modify something they're doing. Right. And of course, much as they are experts, the Fed cannot predict the future, nor can the rest of us. So do not take anything that they say or anything we say or anything anybody else says as gospel uh, because, um, you know, (laughs) because no one really knows for sure what the future is going to bring. Well, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!